welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Darg Larson, and he's the founder and CEO of Dockler, which is a virtual ward company. So Darg graduated from the Stockholm School of Economics and formerly held executive positions at MTG, Viaplay, and Turnpike Group. So Dockler uses the latest wearable devices to allow medical staff to monitor the vital signs of a patient remotely through a secure web browser or while the patient is at home. So its virtual wards allow NHS trusts to reduce the number of vulnerable patients required to remain in hospital, increasing the capacity to look after patients. So Darg and I had an awesome chat all about his background, which is super interesting. Hope you enjoy this one, guys. So, Dog, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Thank you, James. I'm, I'm doing great, thank you. Excellent. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Dog? I'm speaking to you from West London, where we have our UK office and also our customer service and our, where we ship our, our boxes and, and devices from. Oh, nice. Are you in the office now, then? I am indeed, yeah. Ah, so it's, you've it's abandoned empty. the working from home vibe. You're back in. I have been, I mean, since we have our uh, kind of supply chain and our, our we, we, uh, we set up our devices here, Yeah, we, we have been working uh, from the office when needed all through nice. the pandemic. So it's essential services. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it. So the way we start these podcasts, Doug, as you know, is that we get you to tell your story. So uh, for our listeners, why don't you give us a bit of a flavor as to uh, how you got to where you are? Good stuff. So my background is entirely unremarkable. Uh, I've always tinkered with stuff, uh, built, uh, you know, uh, built computers and set them, set them uh, together. Uh, I studied economics because I didn't really know what to do. And um, I studied at a school that normally kind of breeds uh, management consultants and, uh, and bankers. Uh, but that didn't really sit very well with me. I felt, I felt it was too conformist to spend your days just, you know, hammering away in Excel or PowerPoint. So I joined a company called, or a company group called Kinevik, which um, is a Swedish company group that's had a long uh, history of innovation. They started out with selling their lumber mills. Then they went into media and telecom. Now they're selling off media and telecom and going into e-commerce and health tech. I think they're one of the biggest investors in Babylon. So I started, oh, wow. a group. Yeah, so, so that was a, a very conscious career path in the sense that I, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I probably didn't feel I had the tools and the knowledge to become one right off the bat. Uh, and I also very much like working in uh, a company not so much in an, kind of an advisory or a consultancy capacity. I like doing stuff, making stuff happen. So it's, it's, it's interesting what you say, just to jump in there, it's interesting what you say about, um, you, you know, you wanted to be an entrepreneur, but you didn't have the tools. It's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I see this question banded around a, a, a lot, you know, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? And I think I'd probably fall into the same category as you in that, it was through working at other companies that I realized that I wanted to have the control, be not necessarily the boss, but be the leader and actually drive a company with the mission that I had in my mind and to create something on the back of that. And 
not only did I learn that I wanted that, I then needed to go and get the tools, right? And so Mm -hmm. by working my way up in other companies, I then felt felt as if I I gained those tools. I mean, do you think entrepreneurs are born, made, or a mixture of both? Well, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, for me, it was very much a sense of adventure. I wanted to have a sense of adventure. And I think entrepreneurship in today's uh, uh, age is very much that, for good and for bad. And I just love, I just love that feeling of succeeding. And I also love the kind of uh, the dread, almost masochistic feeling of of not succeeding, <laughs> getting a deal, etc. Uh, it makes life a lot more interesting. So, so I guess, I guess that's the background. Yeah, fair enough. And so, then, what was your first foray into entrepreneurship then? Well, so I started this graduate program, which have again bred a lot of successful entrepreneurs. Perhaps most famously, uh, the guy who founded Skype, Niklas Sandström. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and a bunch of other great entrepreneurs. And what you, what you do there is basically one part uh, kind of helping a CEO of a company and the other part operations, project management, etc. So I was sitting one night late uh, doing a board report for an online casino, which the group owned. And I saw that um, out of all the registrations that the casino had, it was like 10% to actually register the credit card. And that seemed very odd to me. So I went into the registration flow and uh, to no one's surprise back this was back in 2009 it looks like absolutely dog's dinner it was like impossible mm. to register a credit card so um, I bought a book which is called uh, don't make me think which is a user experience book and I kind of redesigned uh, the um, redesigned the, the, the purchase flow of, of the online casino and this was very serendipitous but it made me realize two things I two things I never want to work in gambling and I love the process of building stuff together with, you know, with engineers and business people, et cetera. So that led me go, to go into uh, product management, really. And I don't have a perfect background to be a product manager because, in essence, product managers do three things. They understand what's really important to do. And a lot of people underestimate this because most software and most things you build is never being used. It's just another button on your remote control. Secondly, you're supposed to understand what's possible to build. So ideally, you're an engineer because you have a very deep understanding of technology. And then the last thing is the design and user experience. In my book, that's what product management in a software company does. And out of those three things, the absolutely most important thing is to do the right stuff. And in a software company and in B2C, we were building a uh, kind of jump there a little bit with I was given the opportunity to become a chief product officer of a portfolio company called Viaplay. And this was a streaming challenger. So we started streaming Premier League and Video On Demand back in 2009. So very, very early. And it's interesting to see what's happened since 2010, you know, and and now. We're now pretty much everything is streamed. The distribution of, of TV and Video On Demand has changed completely. And back then, no one knew what to do. We didn't know how we were going to get paid, if it was advertisement, transaction, or subscription. And my role in that company was to try to figure out what is important and then steer about, in the end, it was about 110 software engineers to do the right things. And in a B2C scenario, you have a lot of really good tools for doing that. You know, you have A-B testing, so you can release a feature if it's very granular. You can do low fidelity user experience, et cetera, et cetera. This entire set of methodology that you can apply. And I think Eric Rice, uh, the author of the Lean Startup, took that one level up. And uh, 
kind of formalized how you can use these tools to run a startup as a, a series of small experiments. So yes. I really think, I really think like product management is a really good segue into entrepreneurship if people consider to be entrepreneurs. I think as well, this has come up a, a load of times on this podcast. It's really interesting and certainly nothing that I would have actually thought of. But it seems that in that streaming example that you've had, you've been part of a company, which is also then part of a sector and part of a new wave of absolute disruption, right? You've seen disruption. You've seen a new technology come in and completely change a business model, a way of working, a way of absorbing information of people. And so I've noticed that people that have seen that, and particularly there's been a few people that have seen it in the music industry that were in when mm. you know Spotify and other things came in, that they've believed in disruption. They've believed mm. in the power that a new technology can have. And they believed, frankly, in their own ideas that they thought, mm. well, I've got an idea just like that was an idea. And then I can see that this thing can now be done. And it's interesting the confidence that that's given people. Would you say that you fall into that bucket too? I, I think very much so. It's, it's a very good uh, analysis of where I am because I am equally convinced that uh, what we're going to talk about later, virtual wards and yeah. part of secondary care is going to change and be distributed and it's going to completely tra transform how secondary care is being yeah. carried out in, in the Western world and other parts too. Nice. So where are we in the story then? What's next? So, um, I mean, again, I wanted to become an entrepreneur and I've had a, a lovely time being a product manager. I built a team of 25 or so people and we were, we were growing the business from zero to a few hundred million dollars. It's a great success stories, but I felt I had to at some point get out really. So, I joined two super charismatic entrepreneurs and a kind of all-star lineup. They were one of the founders had previously worked directly under Elon Musk. Wow. And, and you know, we had no problem whatsoever raising millions of euros to build a, a, <laughs> what a lineage a that is to be mentored by that guy who's yeah. then mentored by Elon Musk. <laughs> so it is, it, to, to be fair, he also has a, a different startup. He's building a big battery factor up, up in, in, in North Sweden. But it was really like a, a super lineup and I wanted to do something completely different. Yeah. So I joined that startup as, uh, as a partner and to do the operational side and the technical side. And I also yeah. helped out a bit on the sell side. So kind of a COO. And it was, it was super exciting. It was built around this super charismatic founder's vision of, of what he wanted to do. So we were building a, a hardware for, for fans, for football fans in particular. And during two years time or two and a half years time, we managed to convince Manchester City Football Club to first pilot the, the, wow. the hardware and then to, to launch it, right? Wow. And it was, it was pretty much, I, I don't want to say it was an absolute failure, but there wasn't sufficient product market fit. The fans, especially in Asia, loved the product, but we could have seen in retrospect that we did not get sufficient buy-in from the football clubs. We were speaking to Justin Bieber, we were speaking to a lot of different people. Basically, <laughs> we were building, you know, we were building a product suite of, of hardware and software for, for fans, really, to Got keep it. track of their, of connect fans to, their, uh, to, to, to whatever they worship, really, sure, to religion Got it. as well. Uh, but for me, it was such a, such a school in IoT because we built the software, we built the hardware, countless trips to China. We failed with the hardware. And we, you know, when you fail in hardware, 
that's that's nine months gone, millions of euros in investment gone. Sounds so stressful. <laughs> it was extremely stressful. I can tell you one thing. I have the deepest respect for anyone ever doing a hardware uh, startup yeah. because it is it is very very special, and any mistake will cost you not only money but time. Wow. So in in retrospect, I could have seen that. All the stuff I learned from software and B2C building our quite successful streaming platform, which is doing great against Netflix, et cetera, I failed to use in a B2B scenario. Because even though we were building hardware for the fans, we didn't get sufficient buy-in from, from the football club. Uh, so they, they didn't invest, it, invest in it enough. So that was kind of disappointing, but nonetheless a really good, really good school, to be honest. Sure. And also, frankly possibly a school in being a founder being that close to founders mm. i mean i suppose there's no better place to learn to be a ceo than being right next to a ceo as a coo right i mean you must have picked up a lot from that indeed and you, you kind of understand how how complex and, and hard it is and in many ways it was probably a better school than the six or seven years i did yeah. within within a group because it is it is such a different environment especially the fundraising etc yeah right so so from there, I was kind of keen on doing something else, and I was very keen on on um, on doing my own stuff. And then I was introduced through a good friend uh, to a guy called Martin Ratz. And Martin has done uh, a number of really interesting things. A, he's built a number of companies uh, that are revenue driven within healthcare. Uh, and, I mean and, that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're already selecting from very few, <laughs> very few companies that are doing that. Wow. And then, and then secondly, he, 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 him himself have experienced a heart attack, uh, even though he's, you know, young, youngish, 40 uh, and, and, and fit and, and don't, don't really fit into the stereotypical wow. person of somebody having a heart attack. So he's kind of experienced how it is going into the ward and then having all this monitoring and all the support you get in a general hospital, and then all of a sudden being outside and there's nothing. And, and, and the third thing which I really liked about, or which was amazing about Martin, since that he's built all of these successful companies and he's still running some of them, is that he has access and he was getting genuine, genuine pull from some of his clients talking about virtual wards, talking about IoT, talking about remote patient monitoring. Interesting. So, so and he also has a, a philosophy of, of how to build a company where one part is obviously technology and, you know, building the, the product and the team. But in parallel, you have to engage with uh, your client and you have to very importantly get paid by your client in order to validate that you do the correct thing. So all of this sounded like, you know, like, like the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And, and I also, you know, very much felt that I wanted to get in and do some real good. I felt I'd done some impactful things and some, and some fun things. And I could have had a great career just being an executive in media companies. Yeah. But this felt like, like such an adventure. I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't really turn it down. Good for you. And I think, in, I mean, so interesting what you say about, you know, the philosophy of being revenue driven, the philosophy of getting people to pay you for what you're doing, just for the validation that it's mm, mm. the best thing to be doing. It's, you know, in the, in the, the modern VC backed culture where lots of startups are getting lots of money to kind of figure it out. It's rarer to find the, companies that are doing this that can actually just start off being revenue generating revenue generating and dare i say it profitable from day mm. one you know mm. very 
very difficult to do so also because obviously with the pressure to grow so fast profits mm. probably not seen as a very good thing as well mm. and so you're always kind of operating at that kind of edge as you're scaling and growing but yeah i'm interested to hear then kind of um yeah so, how this how this led to where you are now basically so, so obviously it's, it's the comment on on your comment i mean we should be humble some companies are extremely yeah. hard to be revenue driven but i think all, nonetheless, you should have that approach in the, sem- in, in the sense that you always have a big effort of what you're doing to seek validation. If that's grant money, research, if you know, whatever it is. So I do agree. And it. actually, because yeah. I, th- I, I do think, and I, I used to say this when I, when I ran accelerators, which is that the biggest problem we often solved was access to customers to validate ideas, but then also mm-hmm. to sell to. And it was that access to customers bit that was so difficult because often the people with the expertise to solve problems in healthcare and health tech, i.e. the computer scientists, the data Mm. scientists, Mm. the engineers, they can't just walk into a hospital and understand how it works and then knock on a door that says, I don't know, NHS in this country and then try and sell something. It just doesn't work like that. So it was very rare to actually have the domain expertise with the technical expertise that could end Mm. up with the knowledge of how to solve the problem, but then also to get in and try and sell it or try and validate it, all those different things. And that's kind of how healthcare is set up. It ends up being very difficult to innovate in for all those different reasons. And so you are absolutely right for, you know, for companies like, like you and I that, that are revenue generating, that are profitable, that run on that model where we can charge clients on a recurring basis and, and solve the problems that way and help those, you know, for us, help those people that are trying to do those things. You're absolutely right. It's extremely humbling. So I'm definitely with you on that. So, so, uh, so, so great. So, so what happened basically is we scanned the market very extensively for, for pilots, for research projects. And we, we, set, uh, set, we set up a team of deep specialists in healthcare and technology and real-time systems, in, in sensor technology. Uh, and we could do that in parallel, really. So while we were setting up the team, we were entering into a lot of different uh, possibilities of, of generating revenue and we were very fortunate to win uh, a large proof of concept study in the UK so this is a retrospective uh, observational study of up to a thousand patients measuring patients that have been discharged from the hospital's vital signs with multi-parameter medical uh, sensors and then going back and see can we predict or can we not predict uh, if we could anticipate some unplanned clinic event, i.e. is the patient going to go into the hospital. So really it couldn't be a better, a better way of going into the market. And obviously as a startup, we could do this, I think, fairly cost efficiently because we're not paying ourselves you know, any, any, yeah. any salary to speak of. And yeah. we could also very ruthlessly draw on expertise from academia and from, from, our, from our networks. Yeah. So except from us, I think, Philips Healthcare won a pilot, Boblin won a pilot, and another startup won a pilot. So we're a fairly good company, and mm. it, it is possible to, to, you know, to enter the market in this way, even though I must say we were extremely fortunate. So just to go back a bit then, so when you, when you put this team together, did you guys have this idea? Did, did you guys know what this was going to look like before applying to that grant even, or were you, were you kind of... Were you trying to mold? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of remembering your comments about previously not quite having the right product market fit. I mean, w- did that make you a bit less rigid in terms of what you thought the product was going to be? Were you kind of molding towards the grant and the, and the market a bit more? I mean, how did you go about that? Much, much more. So, I mean, obviously, we needed to build out like the, the, 
basic software and you know basic uh, supply chain and everything like that yeah. but we did just very much mold the company on conversations with payers with clinicians trying to understand yeah. reimbursement codes a much more so all of those experiments you know we're talking about yeah. we tried to do much much earlier which, end of, which country did you do this in so both in both in scandinavia and in the uk we think oh, UK wow. is a, okay it's, it's a very good market for this type of, of service and health tech provider in, in europe nice so talk me through the product then talk me through what it is what it looks like um because i suppose having having got that grant money did you then go and build it or did you kind of have it and what so we, I mean, we, we were financed by loans from ourselves in the beginning, um, Got it. but, but, but to answer your question on the product, so we, we're enabling remote patient monitoring. So we're yeah. a virtual ward company. That means that we take patients earlier that can be discharged earlier. This could be patients with a suppressed immune system. It could be patients that's just gone into surgery, but it could also be patients with different kinds of chronic conditions that need to be monitored, congestive heart failure, hypertensive uh, patients, COPD patients. Um, so that's, that's, that's the overriding goal. And we do this by supplying all tech that is necessary. This means, this means all the devices. We're not a device manufacturer. We're never going to do hardware again. Supply, <laughs> supply all the devices. Uh, and these are different kinds of devices, very much dependent on the clinical pathway we support. So this, what we've learned that there's not a single multi-parameter device that can support all different pathways. It's very much contextual. In addition to the medical devices, we supply a pre-configured mobile phone. We pair the mobile phone with the device if it's a Bluetooth-enabled phone. We make sure that the mobile phone we supply is connected through, uh, yeah, give it data. Uh, so, and then we have a, a user interface for the clinician so they can just log in and look at the vital signs data. So we supply everything. The third thing that we do is that we wrap this around a comprehensive service layer. And we think through our research, we understood that one of the reasons why remote patient monitoring hasn't taken off, even though it's been a good idea for like 15 years, and even though IoT technology is really maturing, one of the big reasons is that a hospital or a public caregiver is not very well positioned to take customer, uh, you know, customer support calls on Bluetooth. Uh, they're not supposed to handle logistics, you know, they're not supposed to do all the nitty gritty of enabling this. So we, I think, I think that's really where we differ from a lot of the competition. competition. We don't have a bespoke device. We have several different devices. New devices are coming every quarter and we scan the market, we test them. Some of them really don't do what they're, what they're saying that they're, they're doing. Uh, some of the AI that's coming out that's, you know, being lauded is, is frankly not good enough. But so we, we take care of the procurement, integration, and supply everything. And then we wrap it in a really big service layer. The, the questions that I've got then. So when you talk about wrapping it in a service layer, obviously, if you're going to solve a problem for, call it, a, who is the customer actually? Who, who, who buys it? So great question. So NHS is our, is our you know, one customer currently. And we have two contracts. And hopefully by end of the month, we'll have uh, several contracts. So it's NHS trusts. Is it hospitals? So we have contract with trust and with hospital. We started out okay. doing the proof of concept in uh, Northampton, and we were just about to launch this this research study that was that I was talking about when COVID nineteen struck, mm. and that led us to we, basically we had everything we had everything we needed in order to supply a service. We had a team, we had the technology, we had uh, the devices. So. We kindly offer, we offered to be of assistance during the COVID-19 uh, crisis and to monitor uh, yeah, COVID-19 patients. 
and there were some exceptional people at Northampton General Hospital, the site which we were running our research study on, that said, okay, let's do it. And really with COVID-19, and I think a lot of people have said it, it's, it's, it's been the worst of times and the best of times, because obviously mm. it's a huge catastrophe, but we really saw how some people in the NHS kind of stood up and stopped being conformists, became leaders, and just yeah. pushed this thing through. So I think within three to five weeks, we put everything together and we launched, uh, we launched our service for COVID-19. This service is now also... Um, used for COPD patients at Northampton General Hospital. And in that example of COVID-19 stuff, so did you, did you guys take a certain specific cohort of patients and allow them to be discharged home earlier? You're then doing 24-7 monitoring and then you flag when things are deteriorating so that they can then go back? Well, the biggest use case was patients coming into the emergency ward. It was unclear if they had COVID-19 but they were in a risk group. Uh, so what we did I then see. was gave them one of our boxes with all of our devices, et cetera, and sent them home. Got and they, then they could be monitored. And, and is it 24-7 monitoring? Is it kind of permanent? Absolutely. Feeds? But it's interesting, yeah. it's, it's interesting that you ask, because when we began, we started with continuous monitoring of the vital signs. But we realized, meaning that the patient wore uh, an armband and we got continuous data all the time. But this wasn't necessarily the best solution, we think, for COVID-19 patients. Right. So now we're working more on having the patients taking the vitals themselves actively with a pulse oximeter, a thermometer, a blood pressure cuff, uh, and just inputting this uh, three times per day. And then we see if there's a deterioration, we act on that. Got it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So the, the amount of data that you're then collecting and everything I suppose that you can do in the background, obviously the, the word AI must get thrown around quite a lot for you. Um, and personalization must get thrown around quite a lot for you. What's your, what are your kind of thoughts on, on those things? Well, well, it does indeed. And while I, uh, I'm a big fan of, of AI and I've used a lot of AI in real time systems before, I think it's almost a bit unfortunate in the space I am in, because it seems to be great in radiology, and, and in uh, dermatology, et cetera. However, so much money in, in, in the space I'm working in is coming from VC funds to fund big AI ventures. Whereas if you look at what actually enables the technology that enables remote patient monitoring, it's IoT technology, and I would also say it's video technology. Because if a GP or if a doctor can call up a patient, have, have his or her vitals, and then also speak to them, that's a really solid assessment of the patient's health. So, so I, in, in a sense, I feel that we're talking so much about AI, AI, so it's almost an opportunity cost about not talking about, you know, how can we build really robust real-time systems? How can we change the policy? I think the policy is extremely important. And how can we change all the bits and bolts of really making a virtual world happen? Yeah, interesting. And I suppose I, I, do, I do relate in the sense that, yeah, AI is talked about a lot. The thing is, I think I've found recently is that, and I mean very recently when I when it's quite as by the way, is that actually it seems that the AI conversation has matured, is maturing. People are talking about it a lot more sensibly, and seemingly, and you might you might disagree, but it seems that there's plenty of AI kind of. Um, 
use cases that are starting to hit and starting to land and starting to make a bit more sense. I mean, mm. you might've seen, you know, NHSX has given out what 140 million or 50 million to like you know, 40 odd projects and people are really starting to, to see the value. And, and I suppose existing in the NHS, you must see this too, that, that there seems to be an appetite for it actually in terms of AI and, and, and whether or not that perhaps has meant more people have started using the term and, and trying to mm. hang on the back of the term, I don't know. But it, it, definitely, it definitely seems to be maturing, I suppose, as a, as a technology and, a, and as a sector for, for adopting it. I don't know, what, what do you think? I mean, to me, it is maturing, but to me, it's also a component. So uh, mm. a use case for us would be is that we put um, an ECG patch on an individual and then we're checking for, you know, arrhythmias and atrial fibrillation. And that's going to be very difficult to do for a cardiologist with like a very noisy data, you know, very noisy yeah. ECG feed running for seven days, you know, more or less impossible. However, running this into an AI and uh, filtering out, uh, you know, all the, all the noise basically get when you have an ambulatory patient feeding in data and then scanning for these anomalies. I mean, it's great, but it is just that. It's a component. Mm. It's not an end-to-end -end solution. And when I, when I look at the clinical evidence of remote patient monitoring, I see that we can manage congestive heart failure patients, you know, with a scale and a blood pressure cuff, COPD patients with, uh, a pulse oximeter and the blood pressure cuff they enter this a few times per week and we see huge improvement in quality of life mm. so, so with this kind of abundant kind of implementation or this low-hanging fruit had had the public caregivers been a hospital i think it's very very like or sorry had the public caregivers been a, a company i think it's very likely that they would aggressively go after these cost savings and these improvements but there seems to be an inertia or something holding, holding this kind of transformation up. And I think that should be perhaps the conversation, the big conversation is how can we look at, how can we look at the healthcare economies and the systems that does this best? What policy do they put in? Uh, you know, how, how do they divide work between the public and the private? And, and how do we basically make it happen? Not so much is how can we implement a, two generation away AI index to replace our current risk score, you know, uh, modified early warning score or whatever's being used. So I think, I think that's my simple put. AI is a, is a great component, but it is a component. Yeah. It, yeah. Interesting. I, I think, I think you're right. I, th I think far, perhaps far too much of the conversation is towards that kind of, the point at which, you know, clinicians aren't needed and all these kind of fanciful things, and I, you know, we say on this podcast all the time that there, there needs to be a focus on adoption and there needs to be a focus on solving problems. And actually, so many people ask me, what technologies do I think are cool? What technologies do I think are going to like disrupt everything and change everything? Or quite often I'm asked, what technology really excites you? And what mm -hmm. I end up saying every single time is that the, uh, the only technology that genuinely excites me is the technology that actually goes in and solves a problem because mm -hmm. that's so rare. It genuinely is so rare for a new technology to actually go in and solve a problem. And I think a really, a really interesting, I, I, I suppose, use case of this would be around about, I'd say, a year, possibly even two years ago. I ended up, I sat on like a few different panels when, when events were happening, if you can remember that <laughs> far back. Um, I ended up sitting on a load of different panels talking about blockchain in healthcare. Because it seemed like somebody had mentioned something about blockchain in healthcare. 
And I think the last panel that I was on, they were talking about, like they were genuinely trying to discuss if blockchain was going to save the NHS. And I just kept thinking like, man, it's so far away that like, it's so far, like, how is that even a thing? I mean, it might, but it, but there are so many pr- actual problems to solve on the ground floor before we even get there in even the slightest way. And perhaps, it, you know, I do see it potentially solving problems in things like identity and, and you know, loading dogs onto systems and, and stuff like that, which there are a few companies doing. Mm-hmm. Way. But is it going to save the NHS? I think we're very, very, very far off that. And, and it, and, and, and you're right. I, th- I think when when we get into those conversations, it really distracts from people that are just trying to solve problems right now. And I think the the the, the notion that you need to be you know a 23 year old computer scientist and reinvent something that's now going to like completely disrupt and change everything, it, we're so unlikely to get that in healthcare just because of the incremental change that is necessary to generally keep things safe. And so those stepwise changes of, of those massive technologies does, I might agree, take, take a bit too much attention, I suppose. Um, well, it's, not, it's not something I want to like, you know, kind of discuss, discuss at length, but I, I do think if you, look at, if you look at the biggest transformation in, in NHS, certainly in Scandinavia, the last few years, I think it's the adoption of uh, the primary care challengers, so the yeah. Babylon and, and the Livets, et cetera. And their base technology is video. Now to say that it's that it's uh, that it's AI, but I'm pretty sure they could run very successful businesses only on video. Yeah, but that uh, they'd struggle only on AI, to put it mildly. And I think it's just good that everyone that's in the space are, are aware of that fact that uh, <laughs> it is actually video. And for us, the fundamental technology that we build our business around is IoT and uh, you know vital signs sensor technology, which is also improving. Connectivity is improving. Uh, battery importantly is improving so the devices can you know, yes. last longer so and, and that technology it works it's proven we have live patients they're super happy and i think what will happen is that just in the case of video on demand is that when we start getting this data second and third generation uh, you know versions of these services and products will perhaps be ai driven and perhaps that will revolutionize things but currently, we have a huge opportunity. If you're a clinical director, if you're a finance director of a hospital, you have a huge opportunity to save money here and now. And I think that should be the big conversation. I yeah. think the big conversation should be, how can we look at policies around the world? Which policies enable the biggest cost savings, reduce suffering for people going into unnecessary exacerbations for chronic conditions? Um, yeah, interesting that you mentioned policy as well as a lever. And I remember when I left um, left clinical medicine and went towards policy just to learn it and understand it and figure out, you know, what could be done. And you know, similar kind of I suppose innovative people in my in my group didn't particularly think policy was a great place to learn anything about innovation. But actually, it's interesting what you said there about you know what policies could change both from a maybe clinical director perspective, but also when you think about the center, you thought you think about the arms and bodies to the department of health and the things that they can do, because actually incentives are really important because they, it trickles down, right? If you, if you incentivize a hospital to buy things with a bit Mm. less risk or you, it's carrot or stick, right? You can, you can incentivize them with some good financial things potentially, or some bad financial things if they don't. And, the, the thing is, is that so much, I, I, I do believe still that so much can be done at, at that level with, with implementing 
the right policies and changing the incentive slightly because while we're in this environment that really doesn't allow for mistakes, doesn't allow for failure. And, and I get it on a patient side and I get the risk and all those things. There are going to be ways of doing it that do incentivize a few more things to be done where people aren't afraid for their jobs or their careers or for patient safety and all those different things that there are definitely ways to incentivize through policy. So it's interesting that you do bring that up. Indeed. And also, I mean, if you look at video being the base technology for, for what happened in primary care, uh, I think the other innovation was the fact that you could be reimbursed with the video meeting with your doctor. Yes. So that, that, I mean, so, so there are those two things in tandem. And since I think I've stressed a few times in this company, we are a company that hopes to make money. I mean, we're, we're raising capital, et cetera, but we still want to follow the validation path of yeah. charging for our services. And yeah. if, you have a, if you have a hospital that has overcrowded wards and they start discharging patients earlier because it's good for the, some of the, not every, not all patients mm. shouldn't you know try to pretend that it's really sensible for a lot of patients to be in the hospital but some patients groups especially during a pandemic it's really good for them to get out of the hospital earlier now in that case there's actually a scenario where a hospital might lose money because they're not being reimbursed for having the hospital in the ward and they're yeah. paying us to uh, to help them set everything up so I think you're absolutely right. And I think we as a as, as health tech startup have to follow and be really, uh, really, really try to follow and at best case, even influence the policy so that, so that we create a dynamic ecosystem where similar things can happen in this space as has happened to, uh, well, it has happened in the primary care. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and going back to one thing you said about the, um, about, about the policies around video changing, I can remember also there was there was a, a policy change whereby, and this makes it really tangible. So if the people that think policy is boring and that this should be largely about like exciting tech, like blockchain, mm. like actually here's how here's a tangible example. So what you just mentioned first, but then also I can remember that it became it became mandatory for GPs to deliver. I think mandatory for GPs to deliver an out of hours service across certain hours, across certain days, at mm. times, mm. etc but a way that they could do that quite scalably and easily was just by doing video. And so mm. that then gave them that capacity without too much disruption. And so it ended up being a, another kind of lever for the telemedicine companies that were going in and changing the way that, that GP practices couldn't, could deliver uh, uh, consultations. And so it became an option for them. And so again, it's just another way that, that policy can change and it can make a real difference. And so you don't need to be, Elon Musk or anything like that, you, you can make change by, by contributing to all these different things, right? It, it is just an important point. But going back, to, um, go, going back to virtual wards, I'm interested in what you think the future is of how you see this playing out in terms of, I mean, do you think that even the hospital and community is two separate things? Do you think that is still a model? Do you think that sick people will go to hospitals and be treated there? Do you think it will all move back into the community? I mean, where do you see the virtual wards once it all goes as far into the future, perhaps? Well, from a, from a policy and organizational perspective, you know, I, I don't feel qualified uh, to kind of say how NHS or any other public caregivers should organize themselves. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, and I also have such tremendous respect for how difficult it is. Like if you change something one place, you know, you could pop out, you have a feedback loop of 10 years yeah. and something else changes. But obviously I could, I would hope that there would be more holistic, you know, 
holistic looking, holistically looking at patients and, and how they move and just not shuffling costs between primary care and secondary care and, yeah. and, 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 and social care. And, and I, I really can't offer a solution of how that should be organized. I recognize that it's tremendously complex. In terms of the technology stack, I do think when we've implemented large scale remote patient monitoring programs, which I, you know, will happen, it's happening in other economies, it's happening around the world, I do believe that there will be room for a lot more continuous monitoring. And I think the technology needs to be a lot better at kind of midwifing the continuous data, not overburden the responsible physician mm. with, with uh, false positives or, you know, just if, I mean, if you and me would have a, a pulse oximeter on us for 24 hours, you know, we would fall asleep after a few glasses of wine and, you know, yeah. show, show low, uh, low saturation. Yeah. So I think on a technology side, the, the real-time systems must be much, much better at interfacing with the current standards of how uh, a physician or a, or a doctor is, 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 is doing handling care and at the same time getting that rich data from continuous passive monitoring because I think that that will transform a lot of things. I think there's quite a few years between where we are today and, and until this will happen. Yeah. But, but that's, that's on the technology side. On, on the service layer, which I think actually is equally important, I'm stressing this because I, yeah. I do believe that there's a big opportunity for players like, like us to help on the service side as well. We hope that we will be able to take some clinical responsibility, meaning that within a careful remit, we can actually help you know, with everything I've just mentioned, logistics, customer service as well, but within a, care, within a careful remit, we can also uh, take clinical responsibility and, and, and uh, help the patients, you know, in certain, certain areas. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear your, your opinion on this because the, there are, it's, it's a few years away, as you say, and we've talked about different things that could happen in terms of incentives and, and different things. Do you think there's anything that you that you have in your mind now that you think could kind of unlock this as a as a new way of working in terms of you know remote monitoring, continuous monitoring, you know actionable insights delivered to clinicians, asynchronous communication on the back of it, you know all the all these different things that have been talked about. As you mentioned before, you know actually you know remote monitoring has been a good idea for 15 years. We're kind of getting there. But do you, what, I'm interested being a, a startup in this space. What do you think would actually really help if you were to pick a couple of things or one thing that, that would really help in terms of making it easier to get this kind of adopted and scaled, I guess? I think if it's, if it's one thing we could do, this is going to sound overly simplistic, but I think in the UK, for instance, it would be great. We're doing an observation retrospective study now. It would be really good to do a double blind-sided benefit yeah. analysis of the major clinical pathways and yes interesting I, I think i think that's i mean and, and the sad part about that is it's probably going to take you know three years <laughs> if you yeah. want to do it rigorously but i think we, we i mean we've seen we've seen those double blinds headed taking place in denmark you know i'm seeing it in, in israel and the us and you really see like okay here you have congestive heart failure patients and you say 35 percent and I think, I think that's the kind of evidence you need. What I would hope is that conversations like this, not just between you and me, but between other people, is that they would be a little bit more entrepreneurial and look at other healthcare systems and say, okay, what can we copy to make sure we get the policy in place? And obviously, 
I would be very keen as well that the policies that are being put in place are not just a race to the bottom. So, you know, how can we get, you know, $2 worth of technology out to the patients and there will be no ad adaptation in, in the hospital? Because we have to remember that opportunity cost of having a patient in the ward is somewhere between 220 and 300 pounds per night. So wow. the opportunity cost is massive. And I would hope that there would be a kind of real sense of urgency. But I think the good news is that COVID-19 has created that sense of urgency. Uh, people do get it now. And I was, I'm ranting about this a lot, but before, before COVID-19, as soon as I had a, a video conference with the NHS, I think it was more a rule than an exception that we fell back on just calling in because somebody couldn't get their video or their voice or their microphone to work. It, it, was, it, was, it was generally the rule of having a video conference of, of the NHS. And kind of the, the polite interpretation, interpretation about that is that they're you know, not so tech savvy and a bit fatigued and might not have the right tools. And a less polite interpretation could be that it's actually, it's actually a bit, almost like a bit of arrogance towards tech. Mm. And, 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 indeed, and, and indeed, the way of working. Then COVID-19 happened. All of a sudden, you know, everyone uses Zoom. And if Zoom doesn't work, you know, we go into another one. And, you, you know, you, like, like normal people do, like normal people in, 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 in other industries do, you, you download a new browser and then it works. And I think just as a metaphor for how quickly things are moving now, uh, I think that people are seeing the benefits of keeping certain patient groups outside the hospital. Not everyone. I mean, it would be dishonest of me, you know, especially to you, a doctor, and stand there and say, okay, you know what, we're going to take 70% of the patients out. You know, so we shouldn't. But, but certain patient groups, we can really make a huge impact and we can make a huge impact today. Uh, I hope that the urgency is there in, in the healthcare systems now. And I think it is largely because of COVID-19, to be honest. What a note to end on, Doc. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, no doubt agree with uh, everything that you've just said. But listen, the, the way that we end these podcasts is that I'll just hand back over to you to summarize a bit about what you're, what, who you are, what you're doing at Dockler, and uh, yeah, any asks that you might have of our audience. So by all means, uh, take it away. Okay, good stuff. So my name is Doug Larson. Uh, I'm representing Dockler. It's a virtual world company. We take patients and discharge them earlier from hospitals, and we also help with chronic care management of, of certain conditions. We supply all the technology uh, to uh, the secondary care, tablets, phones, uh, medical devices, software, in order to make it happen. And we also have a comprehensive service layer, uh, which we uh, support the hospital with, meaning that we have 24-hour customer service, et cetera, et cetera. Now, through kind of hard-earned experience. I have a, probably a few uh, recommendations for anyone uh, foolish enough trying to get go into to, to health tech space. And the first one would be to try to get paid for stuff that you do, even though if it's just a little bit. And it's, it might not be so much for the money as for the validation. The biggest risk is your, you know, the biggest asset you have is your time and you need to steer your company towards some steer your company towards where people actually want to pay for you to solve the problem. It can't just be a good thing for the patients. It has to be a good idea for the payers as well. The second recommendation is that your pilot is a phase one. Try to get a phase two, a phase three, a conversation, or perhaps in the contract, set up success metrics for your pilots. Somebody told me 
a few weeks ago that the NHS has more pilots than British Airways. And I think mm-hmm. it's true. It has to be a phase one. And then there's following phases. The third thing I would like to say is that ask people for help. A very big thing about going into the health tech space will be to understand public procurement. And if you can lean on the right people to actually help you win those procurements, you can go out to academia, you can go out to experts and ask ask them to help. You can build your company so that it looks like Philips, even though it's just a startup. And the fourth thing is actually in connection to that as well. You have to understand public procurement just as well as you understand your technology stack. You cannot, you cannot be so naive to believe that your solution is going to be so revolution, revolutionary so that you don't have to go the same route to market as everyone else. You have to be a real expert in public procurement. If you don't have that expertise, you need to get it into the company. And the last thing is, I would like to say is that your company should be a company and not a feature. So you need to build a solution uh, that is big enough for you to actually, yeah, well, starting on my, uh, finishing on my, la- on my first note that, that you can get paid for. Absolutely. And uh, Doug, if people want to get in touch with you or Dockler, how do they get in touch with you? I would recommend just add me on LinkedIn and uh, write the note. Uh, you can find me on Dag, uh, Dag Larson at LinkedIn. Amazing. Thank thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.